we were sadly also part of a group think that said that the primary way that you respond to a pandemic is the flu pandemic playbook. Jeremy Hunt needs no introduction to our audience. He was the UK Secretary of State between 2012 and 2018, making him the longest serving health secretary ever. He subsequently served as UK Foreign Secretary and stood for the leadership of the Conservative Party in 2019, losing out to the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Still a Conservative MP, he is now Chair of the Cross-Party Health Select Committee. I'm Gareth Iacobucci, Chief Reporter for the BMJ. In 2015, Jeremy Hunt sought to impose a new contract on junior doctors that led to industrial action and drove a wedge between him and the medical profession. Six years later, he's speaking out against the current government's pandemic response and relations with doctors have mellowed. In this interview, we discussed his views on how the UK has responded to COVID-19, whether he regrets certain actions he took or didn't take whilst in office, and how the government should tackle ongoing workforce shortages that have persisted since his time in office. We also talked about the potential for a public inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic and what an upcoming Health Select Committee report into the same issue might find. Which aspects of the UK's response to COVID-19 do you think currently require the most attention or the most improvement? Um, Because obviously there are lots of different um, aspects and facets to it. Well, there are there are things where we are, you know, heading in the right direction, such as tight border controls, which play to our biggest asset actually in fighting a pandemic, which is that we are an island. So, because we don't, apart from on uh, the island of Ireland, we don't have any road access to the UK. Um, we can control who comes in much more easily than landlocked countries. So um, that's definitely part of what needs to happen. But I think the biggest gap at the moment is that between 40 and 75% of the people who are asked to isolate by NHS test and trace are not complying, um, at least not complying to the full extent that they're being asked to. And indeed, according to the Cabinet Office paper, 15% of them are still going to work. So that works out at about 30,000 people a day, uh, 30,000 additional people a day who could be continuing to spread the virus. Uh, They are people who have been in sufficiently close contact with someone who's tested positive for us to want them to self-isolate. That seems to me to be the biggest thing that we have to sort out if we want to bring the case rate right the way down so that um, we can start instituting what I think is now being described as deep contact tracing but essentially the kind of contact tracing that you have in somewhere like Korea or Taiwan, which is much more thorough. Um, But so you can only do that when you have much smaller numbers of cases. Sure. And on the topic of of self-isolation, it is the way to fix that for the government to extend the financial support so that more people who need to self-isolate feel they can do so? Because we know that sort of, in some cases, people do find it extremely difficult to to follow that advice because of factors like insecure employment, for example. Yes, I think that's the single biggest thing that we, we need to sort out. It's clear that uh, 
you know, if you're an Uber driver, you, you may well worry that you're just going to lose your income. And um, uh, if you haven't got any symptoms, you think, well, in that case, I'm just going to go to work. And uh, not suggesting that that is an issue with Uber in particular, but that kind of employment, um, you can see that as a risk. So I think we should just offer a blanket uh, salary backfill promise that if you're asked to self-isolate, uh, we will refund any salary you lose. And I think, frankly, uh, that would be cheaper than having to extend lockdown continuously because we can't get the cases down to the levels that we want. Sure. And with regards to the test and trace, which obviously is is a part of that whole response, um, I know that last year um, you were critical of the decision to stop doing the community testing and tracing in, in March. Um, how would you assess the performance of the current test and trace service? Um, is it working as it should do? And, and if if not, what, what are the areas sort of um, that it could, it could improve? Well, we we've really been on the back foot from the start on test and trace. Um, and in some ways, it dates back to the period when I was health secretary because we did a exhaustive pandemic preparations. We were lauded by Johns Hopkins University as being the second best prepared country in the world. But we were sadly also part of a groupthink that said that the primary way that you respond to a pandemic is the flu pandemic playbook rather than the method that you would use for SARS and MERS. And that was a group thing that was not unique to the UK, that was shared in the US and across Europe. But it's why there is this stark difference in the effectiveness of our responses compared to countries in East Asia. And um, that meant that we didn't have test and trace capability at the start of the outset, but, but also that we spent much too long deciding to do it. SAGE didn't even model test and trace as a way of controlling the pandemic until May. And the initial decision to ramp up testing in April was really because there was such an uproar about NHS workers um, having to self-isolate um, when a family member displayed symptoms um, rather than a, a change in strategy at that stage to move the test and trace. So because we had to set up our capacity very quickly, and we did it late in May, we opted for a centralised solution, which is um, certainly quicker to get up in a hurry. Um, but I think it's very clear um, that uh, whilst centralised testing and the sort of giant capacity that you can do in some of those lighthouse laboratories was the right thing to do, when it comes to contact tracing, you're far more likely to comply if you're called by someone in your local council than someone in a call center 300 miles away, particularly if there's any kind of risk to your livelihood. So I do think that one of the big lessons for the future is to have a localized contact tracing capability. Sure. And um, linked to that, um, how do you feel about mass community testing? Um, so obviously there, there there's a, lots of um, talk about this being rolled out um, across local authorities at the moment. Um, uh, there's, I guess, mixed feelings in, in some of our readership are sort of about how the messages should be communicated to the public about what can and can't be done with um, the, these sort of new rapid tests. Do you, do you have thoughts on that and how they should be deployed? I think mass community testing is going to be essential going forward um, because 
you know, the evil genius of this virus is that a lot of people carry it and spread it asymptomatically. So you have to have a testing regime. And once case numbers have risen beyond a certain level, um, it's in practice very, very difficult to pick up asymptomatic carriers without some kind of mass testing program. Now, there's a lot of debate about the effectiveness of, you know, PCR tests versus lateral flow tests versus the lamp tests. And um, I defer to the experts on that, but you you can perhaps have a second test, a confirmatory test, if you're um, worried about the effectiveness of the lateral flow test. There are ways around these issues, but um, I think ultimately what we will move to is a um, is a sort of passporting system where um, you have an app that states that you've either been vaccinated or you had a test very recently, and that therefore uh, the places you go to know that you are COVID secure. And, um, you know, until we've completely got this virus under control, um, that I think will be a way that we find that we can get back to normal life. Sure. And um, do you feel that um, it's very important that sort of the limits are communicated as well as the the sort of um, the benefits of these tests? I, I suppose what I'm thinking is sort of... Um, the potential for people to sort of feel that if they have a, a particular result that it can kind of influence the way they behave and that they may not sort of um, adhere to some of the other, um, uh, I guess, um, aspects of infection control that, um, you know, the government has been um, advising. Yes, I mean, I think we always have to be very open with people about the, uh, the risk of false negatives, false positives, um, all those things. But in the end, you know, the, uh, the lateral flow tests do miss a slightly higher number of um, COVID cases than PCR tests. Um, but the people that they pick up are usually carriers. And so, you know, a mass programme using lateral flow tests is something that reduces risk because it brings in a number of people that we wouldn't have previously known about that have the virus. So I think it has a very important role. Sure. Um, I'd like to move on and talk about PPE, which is obviously another issue that um, has, uh, you know, been sort of a big part of um, the government's response. And uh, particularly last year, there was lots of reports of shortages whilst that sort of situation has improved. Um, how do you assess the current provision of PPE for healthcare staff? Um, I guess particularly in the context of the new variants, do do more staff need higher grade PPE? Do you think? Um, I wouldn't feel qualified to make a judgment on that. I think that's the kind of thing that we have to look at what the World Health Organization says and what the experts say. Um, I would always urge caution uh, when you have a new virus that you don't wholly understand. Um, my briefings about the new virus have been not that it transmits in a new way to previous strains, but it's just that you only need a, a lower level of virus um, in order to, to catch the virus. And um, so um, I think the experts have to judge, but I would say the, the big lesson on PPE is that we have to have a domestic manufacturing capability because if there is a global pandemic, countries all over the world suddenly all want PPE at the same time. And uh, so you can't depend on imports 
in a situation like that. I think also we will make the same conclusion when it comes to vaccines, vaccine manufacturing incidentally. But that seems to be the most important learning point on PPE. Sure. And um, actually, your your point on vaccination leads into my next question, really, which was, um, what are your thoughts on the UK's vaccination policy, I guess, both in terms of the prioritisation list um, and also the the um, the science around the spacing of the doses, which is obviously um, there have been some alterations to that. Um, I, I just wondered what your sort of general views were about um, the way that's being carried out. Well, I am persuaded by what Chris Whitty and Jonathan Van Tam have said about it being the right decision to space the doses. I know it's a, a controversial thing, but I think in a pandemic there is no easy solution, and I think we are reducing more risk for more people by getting the first doses out to as many people as possible. Um, there is no evidence that they don't work as well uh, with spacing out. Um, we just haven't tested it. Um, so we're having to uh, make an assumption. And I think in the circumstances, given the need for speed right now, that is a reasonable assumption to make. Um, when it comes to the priority with which people are given the vaccine, I mean, I am a supporter of the JCVI system because I think it depoliticizes what could be a very uh, politically difficult decision. I, um, I think on balance, they've got it right. Um, at the moment, the first four priority groups, 88% of all those who have died so far, they are an obvious group to target uh, straight up. Following that, uh, then you have you know, a legitimate debate about whether you should prioritise uh, key workers like teachers or, or the police, but also the 50 to 70-year-olds who are the people who are filling up ICUs at the moment. And we have to factor into that debate the number of lives that are being lost because of interruptions to normal NHS care caused by the fact that about a third of our beds are full of COVID patients and nearly all our ICU beds are COVID patients. So that I think is something that it's right and proper that, that uh, objectively scientists should look at rather than it being decided as a result of you know highly effective campaigning by this or that group. Sure and this week obviously the UK passed a, a very grim milestone of a hundred thousand lives lost to COVID, which has obviously gained a lot of attention, that statistic this week. Um, if we just step back and look at the the UK's response to the pandemic over the past 12 months, um, where, in your view, have sort of the biggest mistakes been made or where where have um, the biggest sort of um, missteps been made that, that have led us to this? Well, it is a horrifying number. I mean, it is the biggest increase in uh, unexpected mortality since 1940 um, and it's genuinely heartbreaking for us as a country to go through this. Um, I think there have been lots of discussions about things that the government could have done differently. Um, indeed the Prime Minister himself has conceded of course with the benefit of hindsight there are things they would have done differently. I mean we've talked about test and trace. We've talked about uh, the timing of the lockdown, uh, which is often debated. 
Um, but I think that will also have to be weighed against the fact that we have had probably the most effective vaccination programme anywhere in the world, um, both in terms of the speed of approving and distributing vaccines for which we are way ahead of any comparably sized country, but also the fact that um, this is the country that developed one of the three vaccines that has been approved for use, which happens to be the cheapest and easiest to transport and therefore may end up being a, an extraordinary lifesaver, for example, on the continent of Africa, where it will be much harder to arrange ultra-cool uh, ultra storage for some of the other vaccines. So I think, you know, globally, the UK has punched well above its weight in terms of helping the world find a solution to this terrible nightmare. And I think any objective analysis of our response to the pandemic will need to balance those two factors. I think that feeds into my next question, really, which was that there, ha there have been calls for a public inquiry into the, the UK's handling of the pandemic. I guess, firstly, is this something you would support? And secondly, when would be an appropriate time to do this in terms of you know, assessing all aspects of the response? And um, as you talk about the sort of the positive elements, the vaccination as well. Um, and just follow, the, yeah. the Prime Minister said there will be an independent inquiry. I, I do agree with him that this is not the time to start it because, you know, having given evidence to public inquiries myself as a cabinet minister, they are immensely time consuming. I mean, the evidence you give, you give under oath. Uh, there are lawyers there asking the questions. You have to be absolutely careful with every word you say to make sure that you're being wholly accurate. And I don't think we would want to tie up Matt Hancock or Boris Johnson um, or Nadim Zahawi in that kind of process at this stage. I mean, I think we need to allow them the space to make the decisions necessary to get the pandemic under control. But, um, you know, assuming it is under control uh, by the time we get to the autumn, then that is certainly a time when one could imagine something like this starting. Sure. And presumably, it, you, assuming that you'll still be in your post, you'd like your committee to to influence it, to feed into it. Um, I'm not sure how that process would work exactly. but Well, we are already doing a parliamentary inquiry into lessons to be learned from the pandemic. We hope to publish that around Easter. So um, our report, which is a joint report of the Science and Technology Select Committee and the Health and Social Care Select Committee, um, is to, designed to be the first early stab at the things we need to learn. And I think that'll be important because a public inquiry will typically take at least a couple of years, can take longer than that. And so we need to take on board any key lessons uh, long before any public inquiry reports. Okay. And can, is it, can you offer a sort of a steer as to any sort of um, themes that are emerging that, that are likely to come out in, in the committee's report? Well, I think we'll be coming out with some proposals as to how we avoid that groupthink that I described with respect to following the flu playbook in our pandemic response. Uh, we'll be looking at the kind of things that we need to have a standing capacity to do better, such as vaccine and PPE manufacture. We'll be looking at whether we got the right balance between central processes and local, locally driven processes. Um, so I think 
the themes that we're looking at won't come as a surprise, but um, select committees are cross-party. Um, it's not the knockabout that you get in prime minister's questions. And what we're really interested in is what are the practical things that we could do differently uh, that we need to learn now? Because I think one of the things that we've all sadly come to accept is that this won't be the last pandemic in our lifetimes. Okay. Um, I'd like to talk to you a bit about your time as Secretary of State. Um, uh, between 2012 and 2018, you were Health Secretary, you presided over the NHS and many other functions beneath it. Um, I just wondered sort of um, whether there are any specific actions that or policies that you took whilst in office that that you now regret or would do differently if you had known that a pandemic was heading our way. You've touched on the, the sort of preparedness aspect, but um, are there any other things that you'd like to uh, to raise on that? Well, um, you know, the question I think a lot of people ask is, um, does the NHS have enough capacity, resilience to handle a pandemic? And I would say that actually it's been surprisingly effective in the last year and uh, everyone who's needed an intensive care bed has got one, everyone who's needed a ventilator has got one and the NHS showed itself to be extremely nimble with setting up the Nightingale hospitals and so on. But that doesn't mean that the NHS does have the capacity it needs and I concluded during my time as health secretary that we need many more doctors, many more nurses um, and that was why I increased the doctor, nurse and midwife training places by a quarter uh, between 2016 and 2017, which is one of the biggest ever increases. But I think we need to go further. And I always feel that um, the number of doctors and nurses we train never gets the priority it deserves because it's decided as a result of negotiation between the Department of Health and the Treasury. And... Um, what we need is to change the system so we can give NHS staff who've been working so hard uh, the confidence. They know this is not a problem you can solve overnight, that you can't sort of magic into being doctors and nurses from, from nowhere. But I think we do at least owe them the confidence that we are doing what it takes to resolve this problem over the medium term. And so I think we should ask the Office for National Statistics to work with NHS England every year and publish what uh, the 5, 10, 15, 20 year workforce requirements for the NHS are going to be so that we can make absolutely sure we are training enough doctors, nurses, endoscopists, uh, oncologists, all those different specialties. And um, that will change every year as technology changes and uh, medicine changes. But uh, we need a much longer time frame uh, in order to get the capacity into the NHS that we need. And do you wish you'd put more emphasis on workforce planning sort of earlier on in your tenure? I wish I'd known about it from the outset. Yes, I mean, I, I arrived as health secretary in 2012 and I dealt with um, Midstaffs and Morecambe Bay and a number of those um, very very challenging issues and so patient safety was my main focus because I'd seen such terrible problems um, but I, you know it takes seven years to train a doctor three years to train a nurse it's a very long-term process this and so I was 
very proud to push through those very large increases in 2016. Um, but the truth is that not a single doctor has yet entered the workforce as a result of those changes that we announced in 2016. Um, and so that's why I think we need to put in place a structure where there is a much longer term approach to this. Yes. Um, and just staying on the workforce, um, we, we've heard, I think, not just in the past year, but over the past several years, um, lots of reports of um, the medical profession feeling demoralised and burnt out. Um, I, I think this has probably overlapped with both your tenure and your successor's tenure. But if you look back to the, the dispute with junior doctors, the um, the funding squeezes, which obviously came from the austerity agenda, um, do, do you, um, I suppose, accept that these factors did not um, leave the NHS sort of well prepared in terms of sort of the resilience of staff? Um, and um, are, are there any elements of that that you, you sort of wish you'd done differently, I suppose? Well, I'm very sad that the, the junior doctor strike happened um, because it was extremely bitter and it lasted a year. Um, and it made it much harder for me to communicate my core priorities around patient safety to an absolutely vital and very hardworking part of the, the workforce. I mean, looking back on it, I think it's very difficult to know how we could have avoided a strike because right at the outset, the BMA balloted for strike action. And once they got that 98% support for strike action, there was really no negotiations that were going to be possible for a very long time. Um, and so what I learned from that is that you can get sucked into a very bitter dispute that neither side really wants very much more quickly than you might imagine. And it was a source of great sadness to me that it happened. But um, I think one of the biggest changes that I focused on during my time was the importance of focusing on the quality and safety of care as much as the volume of care that we give. The NHS is the most accessible healthcare system in the world and we're rightly proud of the founding principles of the NHS uh, where you know we don't invoice patients for their care and so it doesn't matter your financial background you can always get access to care but but I think part of that founding vision is very much that you should be able to access the highest quality, safest care. And I think the NHS has made great progress on that. Uh, and we've learned to be a lot more transparent when we have problems. Um, and I introduced the, the Ofsted system with reforms to the CQC, um, which worked much, much more quickly than I thought by the time I left the job three million more patients were being treated in good or outstanding hospitals every year compared to when I arrived. And in fact, just after I left, um, for the first time, a hospital got an outstanding rating in safety. That's Western Sussex. So I think the focus on quality and safety um, has been extremely impressive and uh, something that I really did want to focus on. And I hope that sets the NHS up for what I, I hope is the next chapter in our history, um, which is to make it our mission, not just to be the most accessible healthcare system in the world, but the safest and highest quality healthcare system in the world. And that means tackling the fact that cancer survival rates are still lower here than France or Germany, that we still have double the number of baby deaths that they have in, in Sweden. Um, and 
I really do believe because of the commitment of NHS staff and because it's what NHS staff want with every bone in their bodies, that we could do that. We really can be the highest quality, safest healthcare system in the world. But I think that needs to be a core part of our vision. And sometimes the focus on targets um, has detracted from the importance of safety and quality. And do you are you concerned that sort of that um, emphasis that you placed um, is is maintained? How would you assess progress on on this agenda since you um, stepped down or you know moved from the post? Well, um, you know, I um, understand that everyone has their own priorities, and it wouldn't be fair to expect other sectors of state to have the same priorities as me. And and indeed, they will have different and very important priorities. And I think Matt Hancock's focus on technology could be really transformative for the safety and quality of care going forward. Um, But I think the most important reform that I introduced was the um, CQC Ofsted rating of um, hospitals, GP surgeries, care homes, domiciliary care providers. And one of the core domains the CQC looks at is safety. So safety is now a board level issue for every NHS provider organization because they all want to get a good CQC rating. So I think, I don't want to say in any way at all that the safety issues are behind us, but I think we are well on our way to being the most safety conscious healthcare organization anywhere in the world. And that is something that I'm very proud of. Sure. and you mentioned social care there, so th- this would be um, perhaps a good moment to ask you um, whether you regret not bringing social care under the same sort of national umbrella as health um, during your time as health secretary. And, you know, do, do you um, is this something that you feel there's some unfinished business there? I do. I mean, I only became health and social care secretary formally in the last six months of my time as health secretary. Um, And that was a time when I had become convinced of the need to inject more resources in the NHS to give it a 10-year plan um, and a long-term funding settlement. And I argued very strongly that we should do the same for the social care system. And I was successful for the NHS. Unfortunately, I was told that it wouldn't be possible to do the social care system at the same time, but that I wouldn't have to wait too long because we'd do that in the spending review that was going to be at the end of that year. And then, unfortunately, um, all the problems of Brexit intervened and Theresa May's government fell. And so not from any lack of interest by Theresa May, incidentally, but three years on, we still don't have a a settlement for the social care system. And this is something that I'm absolutely determined that we get the government to agree to do this year. I asked Boris Johnson about it last week. Um, You know, the NHS has a 10 year plan. The social care system needs one, too. And we need uh, a big new funding settlement to to recognise the pressures the social care system is under and indeed to deal with some terrible unfairnesses, such as the way we look after families living with dementia and, and MS and other neurological conditions who don't get the same support as families living with with cancer. So, um, yes, is the answer to that question. I'm very, very keen to to get a 10-year plan for the social care system. Okay. And specifically in terms of the pandemic, um, obviously care homes have suffered enormously. Um, 
I, I was um, having a look at the, the Cygnus exercise reports and pandemic preparedness, which um, was t- took place in 2016. And one of the recommendations was that capacity of care homes should be, you know, should be boosted. Um, was this a recommendation that you took forward at the time um, or did we, were you blocked from doing it? I, I just wondered if you could explain sort of um, what how that recommendation was or wasn't acted on at the time and um, whether this was something um, that, that you feel that, that still needs to be acted upon, I suppose. Well, all the recommendations that were made to me as Secretary of State following uh, Cygnus were implemented and that was confirmed by the Permanent Secretary of the Department of Health to Parliament last year. Um, And they were principally around uh, preparing legislation for emergency powers, um, around population triage. But if you look at, uh, to answer your question bluntly, I do think we need more capacity in the social care system, which is why I want a 10-year plan for social care. Um, But in terms of the pandemic response, I think Uh, the biggest mistakes in the social care sector were around uh, the safety of patients and the discharging of patients who were COVID positive into care homes. And I think we have a lot to learn from countries like Germany that said that uh, you were not allowed to take COVID positive patients unless as a care home you were able to quarantine them for two weeks. And they were very strict about that. And that may be the single reason why their death rate has been so much lower, if there is one reason more than any other. I think we can learn from countries like, from places like Hong Kong, where all care homes following SARS were required to have a three-month stockpile of PPE um, ahead of, you know, just to prepare for any pandemic. So, um, yes, we do need more resilience in the social care sector. Um, but I think it's the um, the protection and the the protection of uh, residents in care homes uh, that has been the biggest thing that we will now know going forward we need to do better. Okay. I'd just like to ask you about your role on the committee and how it compares to being Secretary of State for Health. Um, I'd just be interested in your observations in terms of your power to influence policy, for example, how do the two compare? Well, obviously, Secretary of State has vastly more power than um, other parliamentarians in their own area, but but probably uh, being chair of a select committee gives you a bigger voice. And I hope that that means that the kind of things I recommend on the basis of the experience I've had other things that will really drive change. So I think, um, you know, we talked about my my view that the ONS should make workforce projections for the NHS on an annual basis. That is really because I know in the context of Whitehall and the way government works, doing something like that really would solve the workforce problem for the long term, because I think any government would want to be able to demonstrate that they were training enough doctors and nurses, a bit in the way the OBR has injected fiscal discipline into the way treasuries present budgets. Um, So um, hopefully it's it's helpful in that respect, but I wouldn't want to suggest that I had anything like the influence of of a Secretary of State, because of course they are, um, you know, they are top of the pyramid. Perhaps what you can do in a role like mine is, is focus your energy on a few specific areas rather than have to deal with a number of the day-to-day pressures that a 
Secretary of State has to do, and, and I've certainly been focusing a lot of energy on the patient safety agenda. Sure. And how much oversight do committees have in terms of um, government decision-making? Do, do the committees sort of have advanced um, notice of, of um, particular policies, or is it, are you more responsive sort of once things are out there? Sometimes you get notice. It really depends on whether the Secretary of State uh, thinks it's in the government's interests to uh, let you know in advance his plans to win you over, if you like, um, or not. And uh, I can think of times when that's happened and times when it hasn't happened. But obviously in a pandemic, lots of decisions are taken very quickly and you, you don't always find, about, find out about things as much in advance as, as you might otherwise do. Okay. And um, you mentioned, I, I think we we'll just go back to the workforce again, um, as well as quotas and targets and incentives. I mean, do you have any other thoughts on how we attract new talent into a, a healthcare workforce in particular that is so obviously exhausted and, you know, burnt out at the moment? Well, I think that um, the prognosis for the NHS workforce um, who have as you say, uh, magnificently risen to the challenge over the last year, is actually very exciting. Um, I think the pandemic has raised the attractiveness of the medical profession um, and nursing, uh, if it actually needed to be raised, because it was always a very popular profession to go into, but it's really uh, made it a very attractive vocation for, for many young people. And I think it's also shown the government how closely we hold the NHS to our heart as a country so it's likely to get the political um, backing that you need. So I am confident that if we if we're smart you know we can turn this period after the pandemic into what I call a 1948 moment. What I mean is that you know the NHS was set up in 1948 when we were bankrupt as a country exhausted after the Second World War, and yet we still found the imagination and vision to do something truly wonderful. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't overcompare a pandemic to the Second World War. Um, but the fact is, this has been the most challenging year for the NHS in its history, and the most challenging year for the NHS workforce. So we should be asking ourselves, what do we need to do now to turn this into a 1948 moment? And giving the NHS workforce the confidence that there is a plan in place, a long-term strategic plan in place that will ultimately deal with the rotor gaps and the pressures and the shortages that uh, make life more pressured than it needs to be, I think it would be the best present that we could give the NHS workforce. And do you think that plan is is yet to be published? Because I know we did actually have the, the you know a 10-year plan for the NHS um, several well, years ago, plan, yes, it um, doesn't have the workforce elements, and the Treasury at the moment won't allow the NHS to publish those projections. So, we're in the rather ridiculous situation that three years after the NHS 10 year plan was published, we still don't have the 10 year workforce plan, and that means that any changes to uh, doctor or nurse or doctor training places because of the time it takes to train a doctor won't actually generate any new doctors within the current. 10-year plan uh, and that's why I think we need to reform the system. And we need movement from the Treasury presumably you, you would suggest? Well the Treasury are you know as, as the Treasury always does they're very protective of doing anything that could influence the outcome of a spending review uh, 
Um, but what I would say is that if you don't plan for the NHS workforce strategically, it ends up costing the taxpayer much more because the NHS then ends up recruiting locum doctors and agency nurses who are much more expensive. And so this is actually the best bet in the long term if you want good cost control as well as if you want a happy workforce. Sure. And more broadly, just thinking about sort of the NHS's road to recovery in terms of um, waiting times, uh, resumption of a full sort of um, roster of services. How challenging is that going to be? And are there any particular sort of um, policy interventions that you think will be necessary over, say, the next year? Well, there'll be lots because, um, unfortunately, the, the impact of COVID is not just that you have at least one additional death for every COVID death caused by the interruption to regular NHS services, but they have a massive expansion in, in waiting lists. Um, Simon Stevens told the Health Select Committee this week that the number of people waiting more than a year for an operation has gone up from about 2,000 to 200,000. So that is a huge increase. And yes, it's going to be all hands on deck to try and bring those uh, waiting lists back down. Um, but uh, that is just going to expose even more the gaps in our workforce. Um, and that's why I think for the sake of morale, with all that pressure ahead of us, uh, we need that long-term workforce plan. And would you like to see the plan this year? Do you, do you think that the, the agencies or the, the people that hold this information are, are capable of publishing it soon? Yes, I think they are. And I think those numbers exist now, actually. We could easily do it this year and we should. Okay, great. Um, so I think we're coming to the end, but just to round off, um, are there any other areas that um, your committee will be looking at this year that we haven't already touched on? Um, we'll be looking at mental health. We'll be looking at learning disability. Um, and we'll be looking at dementia among a whole range of, of other areas and uh, keeping up a strong theme of patient safety. You've been listening to Jeremy Hunt, Chair of the UK Health and Social Care Select Committee. We'll have more big interviews coming soon. Jeremy Farrer, Director of the Wellcome Trust, will be next. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm Gareth Iacobucci. Thanks for listening. <laughs>